Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via telehealth and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, the Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian, and the newest book, Gut Feelings. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the Telehealth Center, we actually have brand new telehealth patient options now open for you, and lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners, we're giving away free signed books. No matter when you listen to this episode, all you have to do for a chance to win is head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Art of Being Well there. Tell us what you love about the show. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast review itself, or you could take a screenshot of that review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every single month, my team and I will be going through the messages on Instagram, as well as the Apple Podcast reviews themselves, picking winners from both places. And then I'll reach out to you. I'll ask which book you want me to sign, and we'll send it out to you. All right, good luck. Let's get to today's guest. She is a longtime friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon is board certified in family medicine and completed a combined research and clinical fellowship in geriatrics and nutritional sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. She completed her undergraduate training in nutritional sciences at the University of Illinois. Dr. Lyon is a subject matter expert and educator in the practical application of protein types and levels for health, performance, aging, and disease prevention. She has continued to receive mentorship from Dr. Daniel Lehman, PhD, over the course of two decades to help bring protein metabolism and nutrition from the bench to the bedside. Let's get right to it. This is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon's Art of Being Well. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, my friend, this is a long time coming. I know. I'm so happy to see you. Great to connect. I, it's great to see you. I, I was trying to think before we started recording this today, what the first time we met in person, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, was it was it outside of Salt Lake City, Park Park City maybe? Was it Utah? 
It may have been. Were you at the, this event? It was a small event. I think it was for a group of orthopedic surgeons. Oh my gosh. Yes. yes. That's right. Oh my gosh. So we gave a talk. It was a, a pretty amazing group. I think it was like the National Association for Orthopedic Surgeon. It was like the Spine Association. Yes. And it was, it was so at, awesome. we yeah. had common, common friend, Dr. Carrie Diolis, who yeah. is an orthopedic surgeon pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. So that's what it first was. And I've been a fan of your work before then and after then following along from the sidelines. I'm so, I'm, I say proud of you. I sound like a, a, a dad, <laughs> but I'm a dad, so I can't help myself. <laughs> I, <laughs> your work is just, you're changing. Oh, Thank you so much. You know, it, it's interesting because we were just talking briefly offline and, you know, this is my first book, this book Forever Strong, which I do believe can change the trajectory of the way people age. And you've already written four books, so you know exactly how this goes and, and really how important it is to be able to provide something that people have and can read and can open and refer to to really get the best out of their life. So I appreciate the opportunity. Oh my goodness. People are going to get so much out of this conversation. Let's start with maybe just framing this, like why this book and why now? And we'll kick it off from there. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. This book is 20 years in the making. It's not a, this book in this moment. What people have to understand is that I have trained in nutritional sciences and been mentored by one of the world-leading experts in protein metabolism. And that started roughly 20 years ago. I, My godmother, who actually I believe that you know, her name is Liz Lipsky. She yes. wrote Digestive Wellness. Yeah. Of the OGs of functional medicine. That's my godmother. Wow. Yeah. That's a small world. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I graduated high school early and I moved in with her. And again, I'm going to bring you up to speed as to why this book, Why Now?, but I have to tell you a little bit about the backstory. And the backstory is at 17, I recognized the importance of nutritional sciences. Living with Liz Lipsky, again, one of the OGs of functional medicine, which is funny because I'm talking to one of the OGs of functional medicine. You started the first telemedicine clinic. So you know what it's like to be an innovator and being at the forefront. And she was exactly that. And I began to see things like the impact of nutrition on people's illnesses and their life. Fast forward, I then did my undergraduate in nutritional sciences, where I landed in the class of Dr. Donald Lehman. And for the listener who doesn't know who he is, he is 75 years old. He has been in research for the last 40 years. And a lot of the principles of dietary nutrition, this came out of his lab. Some of the big discoveries when we think about eating with a meal distribution of protein, which I'm sure we'll get to, he put the pieces together. This is really an innovator. And I fell in love with the nutrition. Fast forward through medical school, then residency, and then I went back to do a fellowship. And after residency, I did a fellowship in nutritional sciences and obesity medicine and geriatrics. So basically my clinical responsibilities were as a geriatrician, for the listener, that's an individual over the age of 65. And how we would think about it from a health and wellness standpoint, it's really about longevity mm -hmm. and quality of life. And the research I was doing was nutritional science and obesity medicine. While on the surface, everyone would think that these things are very different. What does geriatrics over the age of 65 have to do with obesity? And what's the common thread between them? And I had an aha moment. 
And I'm, I'm sure you've had many aha moments in, in your career. I had this aha moment during the day and on the weekends, I would round in these nursing homes and we've seen what dementia looks like. And if you haven't, it's devastating. It's devastating. It's devastating to see end of life over and over again. And the quality towards the end of life of people not remembering their kids' names, not just, just no quality of life. And in the mornings, early mornings, I would do muscle biopsies and fat biopsies. And then in the evenings, it would be either an obesity medicine clinic or some kind of obesity research. And I fell in love with one participant. We'll just call her Betty. And we were looking at brain function and body weight. And I love this woman. She had like big curly hair, you know, it's like super robust and friendly and three little, you know, three not little kids, but older kids. She was in her mid fifties and she always put herself last. And she always was yo-yo dieting, trying to get rid of that same 20 pounds. And I imaged her brain and her brain looked like the beginning of an Alzheimer's brain. And I took it so personally. And I felt like I failed her, felt like the medical community had failed her, that when we were telling her to correct her body fat, we were telling her, you know, the recommendation, which hasn't changed, is eat less, move more, follow a 50% carbohydrate diet, and yeah, just continue to restrict. After years of yo-yo dieting, it destroyed her muscle, her skeletal muscle. And as a result, because of the destruction of muscle, uh, one of many, it destroyed her brain. And it was in the process of, you know, destroying her brain. It was at that moment that I realized the one thing my sickest patients or most compromised patients had in common was not an obesity issue. It wasn't that they were over fat. It was that they all had unhealthy skeletal muscle. Mm. And that is where muscle-centric medicine was born, actually in 2015. Wow. What? So this concept of unhealthy muscle, it's yeah. something that, you know, you are, are really educating the world about this. You are the leader in this research and educating and empowering the masses. I'd love to start with that. Like why people hear about it, they think, oh, why should I care about my skeletal muscle? Like, isn't that just about the physique? Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what is, why is this <laughs> profoundly important? Okay, so we should play a game. When people think about skeletal muscle, they think about skinny tank yeah, tops. Yeah, biceps. Yeah. And like, the muscle heads and the fanny yeah. packs, which by the way, <laughs> you totally wear one. They think about kind of bro-ish, bro science, dudes in the gym. That's what muscle is about. They think about meatheads. No offense. I would consider myself a, a meathead too. But for the general public, there is this huge dichotomy between skeletal muscle health and kind of being jacked in town. And when we think about skeletal muscle, I would say, again, I'm a practicing physician, I would say that skeletal muscle is so much more than the obvious biomechanical infrastructure that it is. It's way more than being able to run fast, lift heavy, be great at sport performance. All of that is amazing, but that is one small aspect of what skeletal muscle actually does and relates to the longevity and the trajectory of our health span. So yes, I will premise it by saying it's great to be jacked and tan. <laughs> and skeletal muscle is the largest endocrine organ in the body. Skeletal muscle 
is an endocrine organ. It is the largest organ system in the body. It's not skin. It's not, you know, your cardiac, your cardiovascular system. It makes up 40% of the body weight and it is a profound, complex tissue that I'm going to lay out a couple of things that it, that it does. And I'm going to lay out a few things that people don't appreciate about skeletal muscle. It is, first of all, the most underappreciated organ system in the body. Mm-hmm. Skeletal muscle, we'll start with the obvious. Skeletal muscle is the metabolic sink. And, we, you know, that is probably what people think. And we can think about skeletal muscle as a suitcase. And it is the place in which you store 80% of glucose that you eat. So it's responsible for glucose disposal. Why is that important? We know that there is prediabetes, there is insulin resistance, there is diabetes, and there is obesity. There is also, I'm just going to throw this out there, cardiovascular disease that has a metabolic underpinning, Alzheimer's disease, which has a metabolic underpinning, and even some forms of cancer, which have a metabolic underpinning. While these seem as if they are not related at the root cause, I would say these diseases and these disease states begin in skeletal muscle decades before we become aware of them. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that again, obesity, insulin resistance begins in skeletal muscle Mm -hmm. before we see symptoms of changes in blood sugar, changes in insulin, changes in many of the markers that will you are measuring in clinic. Yeah. They are diseases of skeletal muscle first. Mm -hmm. Skeletal muscle is the primary site for glucose disposal, 80 some percent of insulin related glucose disposal. What is also amazing is contracting skeletal muscle does not require insulin. Um, And why insulin is a peptide hormone that is released from the pancreas that moves glucose from the bloodstream into the cells because glucose at high levels is toxic to the body, has to get out of the bloodstream. The clinical, you know, there is a definition for that, and that is diabetes, if you can't. That's one really, really important aspect of skeletal muscle. Something else that's really interesting is that there's 40 million people on statins. Well, skeletal muscle is the primary site for fatty acid oxidation. So cool. What else does it do? Contracting skeletal muscle releases glutamine a semi-essential amino acid, and glutamine feeds cells of the immune system. Skeletal muscle also releases myokines. And probably the most famous myokine is is called interleukin-6. And people are thinking, hmm, I've probably heard interleukin-6, and I'm sure you've talked about it as it is related to a cytokine storm Mm -hmm. and inflammation. Exercising skeletal muscle as an endocrine organ releases myokines. And there's 600 or more myokines. One of these myokines, interleukin-6, again, the most famous, has a plethora of impact on the body. And one of which is it helps balance a fired up immune system. So it, it helps kind of taper out and balance out a negative immune response, which is incredible. Yeah. Essentially, exercise is anti-inflammatory. And the action of exercise has a more potent response than anything combined that we do, right? The way in which it pushes systems in the body, it is so significant. 
a few more things, and then we can get into more detail. So right now I've told you it is going to make you stronger, faster, and more jacked and tan. Okay, great. It's also going to protect you from insulin resistance and these diseases of aging, which begin in skeletal muscle. Obviously, they're very complex diseases, but we cannot overlook and understate the importance of skeletal muscle as a primary site. And it is a organ that interfaces with the immune system. It is anti-inflammatory when you contract it. It also feeds cells of the immune system. Another really important aspect of skeletal muscle is that as we age, it is our body armor, not just physically, but we don't age in a linear way. We age through a series of catabolic crises. For example, if you break your leg or you get injured or you get sick and you have to stay in bed for a week, the aging process is not this linear process. It's, I got injured and then you never go back up to baseline. Skeletal muscle is what helps you recover, repair. It utilizes those amino acids. And there's a whole host of things that change within skeletal muscle if we eat and train the way we did when we were in our 20s. Mm, it's powerful. You, you've motivated everybody. Okay, I, I need to get healthy muscle. One of the top things that we see at the telehealth center are people struggling with hormonal-based issues. They could have a slew of different potential symptoms depending on the person, but one of the top things that we see in that category are people that are struggling with sex drive issues. They have a low libido, they have dryness, they have uncomfortable, painful sex. This can really impact people's quality of lives. It can impact their relationships, but also their self-esteem and confidence and how they feel about themselves. Our job in functional medicine is to support wellness from the inside out as well as the outside in. And a brand that I love that's really supportive of my patient's sexual wellness is Foria. You have to check Foria out. Foria creates award-winning products to support intimate experiences across every stage of your life, from menstruation to menopause. Foria's products are made with liquid coconut oil for long-lasting moisture and 400 milligrams of CBD for enhanced relaxation. Foria fans love their sex oil because it's clean, silky, but never sticky, and safe for sensitive skin. What I recommend is trying all of their intimacy bestsellers. You need to try the Quickie Kit. Their bundle contains deluxe travel sizes of their three best-selling formulas, the Awaken Arousal Oil, the Sex Oil, and two Intimacy Melts to enhance pleasure. I can read insanely glowing reviews from Foria's website all day. I would recommend going to Foria's website and just reading the testimonials. They have a cult following but you really just have to try their formulas for yourself to truly, truly understand. I highly recommend that you do. The good news is that Foria is offering a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first order by visiting foriawellness.com slash or use code willcole at checkout. That's F-O-R-I-A wellness.com forward slash willcole for 20% off your first order. Again, I recommend trying their Awaken Arousal Oil, the sex oil. You'll thank me later. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you probably know, you better know by now, that I've been drinking AG1 for years. I use it myself, my team loves it, and we recommend it to telehealth patients. If you've been living under a rock and you don't know AG1 is, let me tell you about it. AG1 is foundational nutrition that supports your body's universal needs, 
like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. I recommend AG1 to everyone that I know because AG1 has a team of doctors and scientists and it's, it's tested for 950 contaminants and is NSF certified for sport, is formulated based on the latest science and maintains the highest quality standards. And it's, some, it's a micro habit, it's something that you can do every day simply. All you have to do is just put one serving in a glass of water. You can put it in smoothies as well, mix it up, it tastes great. And it's something that you can do very simply, very sustainably that nourishes your body. Think of it as a multivitamin, multimineral, a green superfood, a probiotic blend, an adaptogenic blend, a functional mushroom blend, all in one. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why AG1 honestly has been a partner for so long, since the beginning of the art of being well. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and also five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash That's drinkag and then the number one, drinkag1.com slash Check it out. So let's start with, well, I'm, the natural question that I think people are going to have is, well, why are we faced with so much unhealthy muscle? And maybe a piggyback with that question is, how does someone know if they have unhealthy muscle? These are great questions. And I'm going to blow your mind for a second. I recommend in my clinic, people get a DEXA. We all recommend getting a DEXA. How are you going to know your body fat, your muscle mass, your bone density? Well, guess what? It doesn't directly measure skeletal muscle mass. And why am I telling you this? Because it does measure fat, which is important to know what your percent body fat is because we know that there are certain risks that ride along with elevated levels of body fat. I highlight this because skeletal muscle has been ignored for a very long time. And in fact, so ignored, whether it's on purpose or we just haven't focused on it as really a focal point of medicine, that we are not measuring it directly. Okay. That's first and foremost, that everything that we have right now, it is not common practice to get a CT scan or an MRI. Both of those are prohibitive, whether obviously a CT scan for radiation reasons and an MRI is just the cost is, is too much. So we are talking about a tissue that we're not measuring directly. And that is one reason why it has been so underappreciated. Number one, because it's hard to talk about something you can't measure. Number two, skeletal muscle. When we think about how does skeletal muscle become unhealthy, there's two major things. And again, there's probably more, but there are only two things that we can do anything about. Number one, one of the things is that what 100% of people do, and that's eat. Okay. Nutrition. The second biggest lever to improve muscle health is exercise. 50% of Americans are not exercising. 24% of Americans are even meeting the recommendations which means almost, you know, like roughly 75% of people are not meeting the recommendations for exercise, which by the way, those recommendations are totally abysmal. What happens when we have unhealthy skeletal muscle? There is some early work out of Yale and it looked at 18-year-old college students that showed no outward signs of obesity. 
they were otherwise considered healthy and lean. When they were sedentary and became sedentary for this study, they showed signs of early insulin resistance. Without any signs of anything, the simple act of not moving muscle makes it insulin resistant. And again, this is, I understand an oversimplification. What does this mean over time? But it's important for humans to put things into frameworks so that we can create a working model in our mind mm -hmm. to be able to execute appropriately. There is no such thing as a healthy sedentary muscle. Over time, you will see what I mentioned, changes of first the tissue, right? And these are the cellular changes, whether it is issues with insulin receptors or some of the, the translocators or, or the glucose receptors into skeletal muscle. There's a, a whole host of things that can go wrong. But on a very fundamental level, if you think about skeletal muscle as a suitcase, let's say you are packing for four days. But I don't know if you're anything like me, Will, but I might pack for 30 days, even though I'm only going for four days. <laughs> and when I do that, I overpack my suitcase. And you can think about clothes like carbohydrates. Again, skeletal muscle is the site for glucose disposal, which then becomes glycogen. When you eat carbohydrates, it has to go somewhere. It'll go to liver. The stores are very small. It'll go to muscle. This is the primary site. If you are not exercising, you are not creating flux. You are not dumping out your suitcase. Over time, what happens is that suitcase becomes more full and blood sugar goes, you know, blood glucose either can't go in or goes back out. Fatty acids also raise in the blood. But ultimately, over time, that tissue becomes fatty. That tissue ends up looking like a ribeye when it really should look like a filet. Now, fast forward to when that begins to happen. And again, I'm speaking about this in a, a very linear way, but there's a whole host of things that are happening. When that tissue becomes infiltrated with fat, you see a decrease in efficiency. You see a decrease in the efficiency of the skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is made up, you know, in part of mitochondria. Mitochondria, part of it can become unhealthy. Part of the skeletal muscle tissue is replaced by fat or there is, there's fat and fibrosis as we age. And there's also, it's not just fat that you see subcutaneously or visceral fat that you see around the organs, you get fat deposition within skeletal muscle. And you asked me a really important question. How do we know? Well, the first thing that I would say is if you are sedentary, you can assume your skeletal muscle is unhealthy. Next thing that I would say is if you have any changes in blood sugar or insulin or triglycerides, again, there's an interplay with diet and muscle, you can assume that your muscle isn't as healthy as you would like it to be. And then I would layer that on with how strong are you? How many push-ups can you do? How fast can you run a mile? What is your physical capacity and how much energy do you have? Again, energy is subjective, but the amount of push-ups that you can do is not. The amount of squats you can do, there are things that you can do that you can identify where you are. And that's how I would think about where the health of your skeletal muscle is. That's beautiful. Thank you for laying that out. So let's talk about quality and quantity of protein. You talk about this eloquently 
there's so much misinformation about that when people see on labels of food grams of protein and they're first of all may confused about both the quality and quantity but, but they may not even know there is a quality of protein they're just looking at grams of protein can you dispel this myth once once and for all like yeah. what 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 do we need as far as how much protein and what type of protein yeah first of all it is wonderful that you pointed this out because we speak about the macronutrients we speak about fat, we speak about carbohydrates, and we speak about protein. We talk very generically as if these are just one thing, that protein is just one thing, but protein is made up of 20 different amino acids. Each of these amino acids have unique biological individual roles and are not replaceable. It's really important for the listener or the viewer to hear that while we talk about protein as a generic term, it really is made up of different nutrients. Again, these nutrients are not interchangeable. Out of the 20 different amino acids, nine of which are essential. Now I'm laying this all out because I want you all to grab your protein bar or all to grab something with a nutrition label and you will pick up that label and you will just see protein. Now I just told you that there are 20 different amino acids, all of which to diverse things, yet none of that is accounted for. None of that is accounted for, including the protein quality. The back of a food label is simply, again, there's many different ways in which they can get a number. Sometimes it's nitrogen-containing compounds. Sometimes it's urea. It's, it's a bit all over the place. Why this is important is because, again, the, we really eat for these nine essential amino acids. And in particular, I'll just give you some examples of amino acids and their secondary roles. You do a lot of gut health stuff, so I'll start with gut health. Threonine is an amino acid that is essential. 75% or so of it is used for mucin production. Mucin helps with gut lining. Now, if you don't have enough protein, the body is going to use that protein for other tissues rather than for mucin production, right? It needs to maintain the health of skeletal muscle. It has to maintain the health of organs. So therefore, it may not prioritize this mucin production. We talk about mood. Phenylalanine is the precursor for dopamine. Tryptophan is the precursor for serotonin. Leucine is one of the branch chain amino acids, probably the most important in muscle health, which is a precursor for mTOR signaling, which for you guys listening simply means it is a trigger for muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis is somewhat of a biomarker for health. We know that if you don't stimulate this tissue, which is skeletal muscle, in an appropriate way that over time we see outcomes like sarcopenia, which we've all seen what someone looks like who is sarcopenic. And this is a bit scrawnier, tiny, loss of strength and mass, typically older individuals. And I'll just mention that it wasn't even recognized as a disease classification until 2016, Will. So when we talk about protein, I also want to highlight something. Nutrition is a hot topic, and I'm, I'm thinking very carefully about how to say this. It is typically not just empirical information. It is empirical. It is emotional. It is agenda. It is political. It is based on belief systems. We are simply not having an open conversation about the data. So I'd like to highlight that. And I want the listener to be a bit open-minded as we go through this conversation. So 
that is important to mention. I want everyone to take a step back and think about what I'm about to say because I'm purely talking about biological numbers. Mm -hmm. There are high quality proteins and there are low quality proteins. High quality proteins are based on those essential amino acids. Essential amino acids, which I talked about, are nine. The body cannot make them versus carbohydrates. The body can generate its own carbohydrate. The body needs a very small amount of essential fatty acids, but the body requires protein for everything that you see and everything that you don't see. And high quality proteins are those that are most similar to our bodies. For example, like beef and chicken, they, they have an amino acid profile very similar to our own tissue. Fish is a high quality protein. Whey protein is considered a high quality protein. Eggs, dairy, I don't think that I, I missed anything, but if I did, it is based on the animal-based source. And the, and the reason it is called high quality is based on these hard, fast biological numbers. A low quality protein would be of lower quality based on lower levels of the amino acids, primarily the essential amino acids. These lower quality proteins include plant proteins. They are things like soy, wheat has protein in it, pea, rice, pea blends, anything that comes from a plant would be considered a low quality protein. Now, the next step I will say is that while we are talking about protein and we are talking about these individual amino acids, each food group has its own array of things that it does. For example, high quality animal-based products have somewhat, they have more fat-soluble vitamins. They have things that are not found in plants like taurine, carnitine, and serine, creatine. And plants have things like fibers that are not found in animal-based products. So as we have this discussion, it's important that we understand Food is not inherently bad, and it is truly about what do we need to do to nourish our body for a capable lifespan. I have, I have seen and been at the other end of what it looks like when it's not done well. Mm -hmm. And no, you don't want to get to that point. You want to do everything that you can to prevent it. Now, when we talk about protein, I'd like to highlight that the current recommendation of 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is the RDA is a recommended dietary allowance, has not been changed since 1968 and is roughly equates to 0.37 grams per pound body weight. For example, a 45 or a 115 pound woman, if you calculate that out, that would be about 45 grams of protein. And that is really too low. It is so low that, again, this is the minimum to prevent deficiencies. There is a ton of aging literature and a ton of body composition literature that when you increase dietary protein to double the RDA, which comes out to roughly 0.7 grams per pound. Mm -hmm. Again, I like to say 0.7 grams per pound of ideal body weight that individuals will see a loss in body fat, a maintenance of skeletal muscle and lean tissue, which include bone, organs, also, you will see lower levels of blood pressure, again, with carbohydrate restriction, mm -hmm. making you know, a better levels of triglycerides, better glucose regulation, and lower levels of fasting insulin. So that is the difference. 
JS Health Vitamins is a science-focused vitamin and wellness brand that provides targeted formulas to help you meet your personal health goals created using the highest quality ingredients backed by research. It's made in Australia and created by expert nutritionist Jessica Seppel. JS Health Vitamins has a formula for all your needs, from your skin health, digestion, stress, sleep, hair growth, and so much more. Australian products are globally renowned for their quality control and regulations when it comes to vitamins. I had Jessica on the podcast. If you haven't listened to the episode, go back because she goes into a deep dive into the supplement industry. It's going to blow your mind. JS Health has so many amazing products. One that I especially love is their mood and emotional balance. It contains clinically studied saffron. The research around saffron is amazing. We talk about it actually in that episode, but it's been proven to support a healthy mood, deep sleep, and calms an anxious mind. They also have fish oil products. They have magnesium. They have hormone support. So many different things. Check them out. The Advanced Magnesium Plus from JS Health Vitamins contains three forms of bioavailable magnesium, like magnesium glycinate, dihydrate, magnesium citrate, and magnesium amino acid chelate, which works synergistically to support muscle relaxation and recovery, energy production, and nervous system function as well. Visit us.jshealthvitamins.com slash Will Cole. Again, that's us.jshealthvitamins.com. J-S-H-E-A-L-T-H vitamins.com slash Will Cole and use code Will Cole at checkout for 20% off your first order or subscription. Again, that's us.jshealthvitamins.com slash Will Cole. There's these two products that I've been loving lately, Beyond Collagen and Beyond Brew. It's a way to elevate your coffee. The Beyond Collagen by Live Conscious is collagen complemented by extras. Featuring five types of collagen protein that's supercharged with biotin and vitamin C, this formula was crafted to take your collagen experience to the next level. Collagen is fundamental, we know, to the beauty of your hair, your skin, your nails, and your joint health. And the addition of biotin and vitamin C amplifies collagen synthesis in the body, magnifying the beauty benefits. It's time to express your true radiance with one scoop at a time. And what my telehealth team and I have been loving at the clinic is mixing the Beyond Collagen with the Beyond Brew. The Beyond Brew from Live Conscious is the deliciously balanced dose of wellness your body and brain crave. Wake and brew with their potent blend of six super-powered organic mushrooms, including lion's mane and reishi, plus powerful pre and probiotics for digestive support. They designed this formula to support sharp cognition, gut and immune health, and overall feel goodness. Think of Beyond Brew as a functional, elevated coffee experience. Enjoy Beyond Brew as your new morning ritual itself, or if you're not ready to kick the habit, simply you can add it to your coffee, your smoothies, or your bowls to take things to the next level. For a limited time, get your next purchase of Beyond Collagen as well as the Beyond Brew with an exclusive 15% off for the Art of Being Well listeners only. Simply use promo code WillCole on WeLiveConscious.com. Again, that's code WillCole for 15% off at WeLiveConscious.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Peyton Sarton, host of the Note to Self podcast. Note to self is a space to embrace your unique qualities, get grounded, and ultimately have honest conversation. No topic is off limits. 
I began doing social media seven years ago, and since then, I've started a clothing line and this podcast. Note to Self is a place where people from every stage of life can come for advice, new perspectives, and to feel a little less alone. Whether I'm recording by myself or bringing along a friend, we will explore topics ranging from relationships and mental wellness to social media and entrepreneurship. Tune in to Note to Self every week for the sisterly advice you didn't know you needed and raw conversations you've always wanted. There's another really important thing. And this is really the highlight of what this book is about. This book is about being forever strong. Mm -hmm. This book is about how do we avoid the confusion while we still have time to execute in a way to put practical tools in place for when you understand how much protein you need. And also, by the way, the RDA was not designed with plant-based proteins. It was not designed with low-quality proteins. Mm -hmm. And when you look at a vegan or vegetarian diet, it is typically much lower protein a vegan diet, the average, I was looking at a a meta-analysis and the average was 60 grams of dietary protein for women and 68 for men. But again, these are somewhat, not necessarily incomplete, but it doesn't say anything about the amino acid content, which I'm about to highlight for you is absolutely critical. So if you get nothing else out of this, I want you to understand how, number one, important protein is and how you're going to dose it in your own life. And I'm going to tell you that now. So that's 0.7 to 1 gram per pound ideal body weight. And then the other thing that you're going to do is you're going to think about, and again, if you are vegan or vegetarian, I would easily say at least hitting 1.6 grams per kg. The very minimum that I would recommend would be 1.7 grams. Again, if you are vegan or vegetarian, you will require more protein to make up for those amino acids. The next layer I'm going to put in there is, again, it's not just about protein. It is about the food matrix. And then how you dose protein. I would say that first meal of the day after you are coming out of an overnight fast is critical. It's critical because skeletal muscle, oh, this is something else I didn't tell you about skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is a nutrient sensing organ. It senses the quality of the nutrition. Specifically, it is exquisitely sensitive to the amino acids, primarily leucine. Again, leucine, people are thinking, well, gosh, this is kind of getting all biochemical and how am I going to get leucine? I'm going to make it so easy for you that you know exactly what to do. Leucine comes in, if you pick a high quality protein, if you hit 30 grams of a high quality protein, you will hit your minimum leucine threshold. Because again, it's easy. It's just the way that it's made up or even a scoop or a scoop and a half of whey protein. Very simple. If you are plant-based, you can do a rice pea blend, but you would want to make sure that that leucine number is around two and a half grams. And oftentimes it can be fortified or made that way. Mm -hmm. That first meal of the day, you've got to get that right. And that would be between 30 and 50 grams because again, this is the time, and this is where all the data to my knowledge is done, is done based on this first meal. Because a first meal is almost like a clean slate. When you hit that protein amount, a few things happen. Number one, what you care about is you're going to stimulate skeletal muscle and you're going to protect that tissue. You're going to protect that tissue from aging. Again, I'm saying this in absolutes. This is not absolutes, but you are doing everything possible in your power nutritionally to protect that tissue because you're stimulating muscle protein synthesis with this particular dose. Number two, you will be less likely to be hungry. Dietary protein affects gut peptides, it affects GLP, it affects GLP, it affects other gut peptides. What we see 
And there's there's a great study by the former Doug Patton Jones and Heather Leidy, where it showed that when individuals had a robust amount of protein at that first meal, they were much less, number one, they had more perceptions, they were fuller, and they actually looked at 10, 20, and 30 grams. And they said, and they saw that the 30 gram mark, there was something about that 30 gram mark of high quality protein that influenced, you know, it's not just the influence of muscle protein synthesis, but it is also the influence of these gut peptides. Mm -hmm. And that individuals were much less likely to go off their eating plan, much less likely to have cravings and hunger. So it's essentially like you're augmenting your willpower. Yeah. Is incredible. Does it matter when people break that fast in the morning? Are you a fan of like time compressed feeding in the morning or should do you recommend for muscle, healthy muscle earlier in the day? I recommend earlier in the day. And I used to recommend fasting till noon and I felt as if it was very interchangeable. Mm-hmm. I think with the more advancing literature of circadian nutrition and circadian alignment, that there's something to be said for eating earlier on in the day mm-hmm. and stopping earlier in the day. The other reason I really like this is you're not going that long without feeding that tissue mm-hmm. because, again, there, there's another way to stimulate tissue and that's through exercise. But overall, you are in a more catabolic state while you're fasting. Mm-hmm. And skeletal muscle becomes more difficult to maintain. And we could all say that logically we understand that. Think about when we were kind of in our, our 20s, we literally could eat Twinkies and you're ripped and, and you're great. And then all of a sudden you hit 35 or 40 and you're thinking, where did this spare tire come from? I mean, I'm just eating and training the exact same way. So I do think that there's something to be said for eating an hour to two hours after you wake. I also believe it's perfectly fine for men and women to train fasted. I've been training for years. I train fasted. You don't need protein before you train and you don't need it for a regular healthy person after. Where an individual would really benefit from having protein afterwards is there some benefit if an individual is more mature, older, Mm -hmm. or if hormones have shifted. I mean, certainly for older individuals, 60 some years old, for sure, after training, because you have now more blood flow. And Ketsanos did a lot of this earlier research where they showed there's a synergistic effect of dietary protein and training. But then again, the International Society for Sports Nutrition would say, as long as you're getting your protein in a 24-hour period, it doesn't matter. Okay. In my opinion, and based on my work as a geriatrician, we see much more positive body composition changes when someone is struggling with any kind of chronic inflammation or obesity or struggling with aging and difficulty putting on muscle that there seems to be an easier time putting on, and I I say this cautiously, maintaining, if not improving body composition. Got it. So that was a question. So we talked about the first meal of the day, making sure we hit that threshold. Does the timing for the rest of the eating window matter? What does the data say? What what do you recommend? And I do this in my book. I put three tracks in the book. Okay. There's been a lot of discussion about an even distribution. And I used to teach people about a 30 gram distribution. So 30 grams of protein for breakfast, 30 grams of protein for lunch, and then 30 grams of protein for dinner. It works incredibly effective. The data, there's no data on that middle meal because when you stimulate muscle, there's a a lot of other things that happen. You stimulate initiation factors. There's EIF4. Again, there's mTOR. There's other 
factors that are stimulated from leucine that can go on for hours. Some decline in two, others can go on for five hours or more. And so if some of these mechanisms are already active, do you need another 30 grams of protein? And so again, you asked about what does the data show? Well, the data would say that the middle meal, it doesn't necessarily have to be 30 grams. And everyone's listening, well, like, what about the leucine? Well, the thing is, you still have to get your total protein in. And we know that in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and there is benefit from having this 30 to 50 grams, you don't want to do one meal with 60 grams of protein. We've already tried that experiment. And it was when, I mean, that is according to the NHANES data, this is how individuals typically eat. So they'll have a small protein breakfast, maybe two eggs, and then a turkey sandwich, and then a big steak dinner. We've already seen the implications of that. It's not ideal for 24-hour protein synthesis. There are other metabolic benefits to distributing protein over the day. And I would say that that last meal, again, if you were looking for just a longevity plan, let's say, you know, in my book, the way I do a longevity plan is that first meal and that last meal when you're going into an overnight fast has between 30 and 50 grams of dietary protein. That middle meal could have 20 grams or less as long as you're, or you could fill it up with whatever it is that you're missing. The weight loss plan, the way that I do a weight loss program is I do an even distribution of dietary protein. Why? Well, I mentioned that there's muscle protein synthesis, which is important over time as a, a marker for muscle health and a protection of, of lean body mass. But also dietary protein really helps augment your willpower and mitigate hunger, which yeah. is everybody knows when they're trying to lose weight, it's those first seven days, those first seven to 14 days, you're really struggling. Mm -hmm. And the data would support a higher protein diet makes weight loss easier. Mm, love that. This is golden, golden. And people are going to have to get the book for all the ins and outs and the protocols you have in there. Do you recommend ever to, for people to track in a, like a food tracking app, like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal to look at the amino acid profile, especially maybe if they're plant-based or is that not necessary if you're following these guidelines? So you make a really good point. I don't know if we're there yet because really the majority of foods have not been measured, right? There's what a new, there's 15,000 new foods that come out. Mm -hmm. The majority of foods have not been put into a database and, and examined. Therefore, where we are right now is we're tracking protein and everybody should do that. You have to know. And a, a very easy fail-safe way to do that is determine where at least 50% of your protein should come from animal-based foods. And I know that, listen, doesn't have to, but this is my recommendation and what I've seen to be very effective for, again, I do weight loss in my clinic. This is, I do this all day long, that the lower your protein overall is, the higher the quality of protein. Again, it's not just the protein. There are also B vitamins, iron, zinc. There's other needs, other nutrient needs, vitamin, mineral needs that as you reduce calories, you really need to make sure that that's covered. So to bring it back to your question, I recommend number one, that you're tracking dietary protein. If you are vegan or vegetarian, then by hitting a higher protein number, like one gram per pound ideal body weight, 
you're going to be solid. You're going to get the protein that you need. The other caveat is if you are trying to get your protein through whole foods, let's say you don't want to do shakes or you don't want to do anything, you know, for whatever reason, then the carbohydrates that ride alongside with being fully on a plant-based diet can be astronomical. And that can create a lot of metabolic difficulties for people. I'll give you an example. Remember when quinoa was considered the superfood? Oh, yeah. The Remember day, like the quinoa, quinoa era. <laughs> the, the, the quinoa era, which I, I think is kind of over. <laughs> but I did, I did the calculation and the calculation was six cups of quinoa for one small chicken breast. Okay. And that's 1,100 calories and whatever, 600 grams of carbohydrates. You will do better when you hit a meal threshold of protein. It is important for aging. It is important to, to support aging. When you're in your 20s, there's a lot more flexibility. Mm-hmm. When you're in your 20s and you're not wanting to eat animal products, then you know it, it seems like there is this turning point that we all go through. I was nearly vegan, vegetarian for a handful of years. And what happened was I started to get more mature. That's my nice way of will of saying older. <laughs> and my training, right? My training really picked up and I got really sick. I could not regulate my hunger. I found myself massively overeating, always thinking about food. And as soon as I was able to balance my dietary protein intake, it's like the grip food had on me was over because I wasn't chasing blood sugar all day long. Yeah. I see it on labs all the time. And again, just to echo, this is from our own clinical experience, personal experience, and data. This is not like we have a strong agenda about one way or the other. No, I, I don't care. And I would say it's not easy being the first female physician to kind of blaze through this. Well, we've known each other for years. I've been talking about this for years. Yeah, you have been. And when I first started talking about it, people thought I was being crazy and that it was just so contrarian. And it's not. I'm talking about muscle health and ways to support muscle health. I'm not saying you have to be carnivore. I'm not saying you have to be X, Y, and Z. You know, I I personally eat a very balanced diet, but who I'm advocating for is number one, I'm advocating for the people in the middle. Part of being a geriatrician is palliative care, is end of life, is working in nursing homes. And I don't want that fate for anybody. You asked about why the book, why now? With the rise of social media and with the rise of confusion and with the rise of mass information, there is a rise of mass chaos and mass misinformation. And if I didn't write this book, I would be so irresponsible. I don't think that I could live with myself because I have seen what happens to the people in the middle. I'm not fighting for the extreme groups. That's not who I'm fighting for, my friends. Mm-hmm. I am fighting for you if you have tried everything and you have failed. I'm fighting for you if you have a, a parent with Alzheimer's, you saw what that looks like. Fighting for you if you've tried every weight loss nutrition plan ever. And you want something sustainable because mm-hmm. if we correct for muscle health, everything else falls into play. It's not the opposite. We can't correct for obesity. Then we're always focused on what we have to lose and what we have to restrict. Yeah. If we focus on skeletal muscle, then we focus on what we have to gain. Yes. I love that. I saw another area that you talk about, and I, I think about your earlier comment where you said, there's no such thing as a healthy sedentary muscle. So the person, I'm thinking the person that's listening to this, they may say, okay, how much do I have to do <laughs> to not be considered sedentary? Or they may not even consider themselves sedentary, but so many people would fall under that category when you look at the 
activity level of average people. But what's the most effective workout to get the most out of these muscle building benefits? That is a wonderful question. And some of the earlier work out of Don Lehman's lab, I'm so cautious to say this, but it's not very much. To maintain skeletal muscle health is not much. He had individuals, we looked at two groups, or he looked at two groups of individuals. I mean, I, you know, as an undergraduate, you never get your name on the paper. So you do all this work, you collect all this urine, you feed all these people, and you never get your name on, on the paper. It's kind of those old school academics. It's so silly. I still bust his chops about it. One study, and this was a, a multi-center study where they looked at two groups. One that was a higher carbohydrate, and it was calorie restricted around 1,600 calories, 50 or so percent carbohydrates, and again, isocaloric, so two groups of 1,600 calories. The other group prioritized dietary protein. It was more of a zone diet, so it was a 40-30-30, so 30% of dietary protein. They switched that first meal to have protein. They made the requirement two days of exercise, something so minimal, and it was yoga. He would be so <laughs> appalled that I'm telling you, but it was very minimal. It was actually stretching activities and walking. And there was still a tremendously significant impact on skeletal muscle health and body composition. The individuals that were on a higher protein diet with just two days a week of some kind of training lost, gosh, it was like 6% of lean tissue versus the carbohydrate with no exercise lost roughly 35% of lean tissue, even though they were calorie controlled. My way of saying this to you is that the amount that one would have to do to maintain the health of skeletal muscle is not much. But again, this is the basics. Mm -hmm. What I would recommend is that you really think about resistance training. I know we don't have time to get into all the other aspects of skeletal muscle. Strength is critical. Strength and mass, although that is controversial in the literature, but it's controversial, I believe, because we haven't been measuring it directly. Strength is really important and so is mass. You have to train for real life. Mm. I would recommend very simply three days a week, 10 set per muscle group of resistance training. Okay. There's a mind-muscle connection. Again, there are loading recommendations for muscle strength, hypertrophy, and endurance. At the end of the day, start wherever you are and work to continue to improve. I would love, I tell all my patients, they can start with yoga, they can start with Pilates, but eventually I want them lifting weights. I want them lifting in, for example, to be able to lift a kettlebell. Why? Not just for the strength aspect and progressive overload, not just for the hypertrophy aspect of increasing weights. Why do I want them lifting? Is because in an emergency, I want them functional. I want to know that you could pick up a 40-pound child, throw it on your shoulder, and be able to get the heck out. Mm -hmm. I have two little kids. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I want to know that you can pick up a suitcase and you can push it overhead. I want to know that you have enough strength to open a window or get up after you fall. Resistance training is non-negotiable for the health of skeletal muscle. It helps with the flux. It helps with type 2 muscle fibers. It helps with, again, glycogen storage. There's a whole host of things. So Quite simply, three days a week of resistance training. If you do nothing else, start there. Most individuals, let's say we go to the gym. I guarantee you the majority of people, especially women, are afraid of getting bulky and they're all going to be on the cardiovascular equipment. Am I right or am I right? Yeah, that's cliche, but true oftentimes. It's true. 
And the dudes are going to be over there in the, in the weight room, right? They're going to be in the weight room. You're not going to get bulky, ladies. It's really hard. Please don't start with cardiovascular activity. Everyone does. This is that zone two training. Is it important? Is it important for mitochondrial health? Totally. If you have time to do nothing else, start with resistance training. I cover this in my book. I put a lot of time and attention. I even will. I even shot my own workout videos. What? Can you imagine? I could, I could never be a fitness influencer. Oh my gosh. Hey. I shot a hundred workout videos. To show us. So we, we're doing it right. You know what you're doing? You could do body weight. But yeah. again, start there. But I want you to have high expectations for yourself. Capacity is never developed out of comfort. Capacity, whether it's muscular capacity, whether it's mental capacity, it is never developed out of comfort. And I don't care where you are on your fitness journey. It is really important that you try something new and you really focus on strength. Good stuff. This is great. As you know, the podcast, it's called The Art of Being Well. At the end of every episode, we have your art of being well. This is Dr. Gabrielle Lyons' Art of Being Well. First question I have actually is about skeletal muscle. Do you recommend supplements? And if so, what are the top two supplements people should be taking for healthy muscles? I do recommend supplements. When I think about healthy skeletal muscle, I think also about a gut muscle access, something called the urolithin A. I don't know if you've heard of it. Postbiotic, I love it. I Postbiotic, urolithin A. I use MitoPure and I use 1,000 milligrams a day, 500 twice a day. The evidence supporting it is incredible. I think it's going to be the next bigger thing, even bigger than fish oil potentially, as it relates to aging and mitochondrial health. So that is when I think about muscle health, absolutely. The other one I will say is creatine and that you could get between three and five grams. But if you're eating a high red meat diet, you don't necessarily need creatine. Mm -hmm. What I would say is the other thing that you could swap out if you didn't want to do creatine could be, are you ready for this? Potentially a whey concentrate, not an isolate, but a concentrate as it has whole foods, it has immunoglobulins, lactoferrin, alpha-lactalbumin. Yeah, those would be my top two. And of course, vitamin D, vitamin D, there are vitamin D receptors on skeletal muscle. I love it. Start with the basics. Start with urolithin A and a, a good whey protein, and you can graduate to creatine. I love it. And this is not planned, but MitoPure Timeline Nutrition is a sponsor on the podcast. So, oh, that's so cool. We didn't plan it, but I love the product too, and I have it every day. I like the soft gels. I do the soft gels. They have a whey protein, which is kind of nice for people. They can kind of get the whey benefits plus the urolithin A. I use the soft gels. And, yeah. you know, my husband ran the Boston Marathon. And the New York Marathon, and he swears by it. He yeah. freaked out when we ran out. Yeah. We had the chief medical officer on the podcast last year. So people go back and listen to that. What is, <laughs> what's the worst tasting healthy food that you still eat? It tastes disgusting, but it has a lot of science behind it. Oh, liver. It's yeah. disgusting. Is there a way to get liver in that's the better? Yeah, so grind it. So I'll have, I'll, I'll have it put into burgers so you don't totally taste it. Because I cannot eat it. It has vitamin A. It has just, it's amazing for iron. It's yeah. amazing for you. But it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. I do the same thing. Force of Nature has a blend, like an ancestral blend, where they mix it and they like cut it, basically. Oh, gross. Yeah. Technically disgusting. Not Force of Nature. I haven't no. had that. No. But, but no, if you, they dilute it in the regular meat. So I love it because it kind of like hides it. I'm like a little baby. Just like <laughs> hide it for me. <laughs> oh, it tastes like a regular burger. I love it. What's your favorite restaurant in the world? And when you're there, what do you order? I don't have a favorite restaurant in the world. We don't really go out. I'm kind of an anomaly. I don't really care about food. I don't care about going out to eat. I just love hanging out with my family. But I live in Houston now. 
And my favorite restaurant is called Tiny Bees in the West. It's a West U. It's amazing. It's all farm to table. And I'll get a, they have a ribeye burger. It's just amazing. What's the weirdest, this is subjective, maybe weirdest or most maybe controversial wellness thing that you've done that you're willing to admit on a podcast? Nicotine. Nicotine lozenge. Yes. It's for brain function. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever talked about it before. I think intermittent nicotine lozenge, not smoking, use is very beneficial. hmm or cognitive performance. I've seen the research. This is like the most wellness thing I'm going to say. I did nicotine lozenge at Dave Asprey's house for a podcast. And it was, yeah. Hey, Dave. I, <laughs> how you doing, buddy? <laughs> the, the, but I noticed a difference. And he was talking about the researcher with the brain function, the amyloid, the Alzheimer's research. Pretty compelling stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it is addictive. You have to be very careful. There's a good appetite suppression component to it. Mm-hmm. And I have no affiliation with this company, but Knickknack is, has like, people joke, right? I'm, I'm pretty evidence-based, but I still like my essential oils and it is, it's all natural. So it's just <laughs> a great product. Knickknack. What are your thoughts on peanut butter? Protein source. The, I'm a big, just, I love the taste of it. So I love it. What's your thoughts on it? Well, the quality of protein is low. Again, you'll look at the back and the back of the label will say it has six grams of, of protein, but you could essentially cut that in half because it doesn't have the right amount of those amino acids, especially for stimulating tissue. Now, if you combined peanut butter with Greek yogurt, now you'll have a more robust protein peanut butter yogurt. But we eat peanuts all the time. Yeah, We eat peanuts in our house. I love it. I don't think that any food, I mean, okay, ultra processed packaged food, we can all agree is not great for us. Yeah. But- you know, as far as food goes, I think it's important to not put uh, morality on it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really important. Yeah, certainly. Is there any up and coming wellness nutrition science trend that you're like really excited about or know people are going to be talking about in a year or so? Yeah. Number one, they are going to shift to look at the limiting essential amino acids as nutrients, and that will be methionine, leucine, and lysine. I think we're going to start to see people scoring that. Maybe we'll see that in Whole Foods where people are going to really begin to acknowledge that each essential amino acid is its own nutrient and not equally essential, number one. Number two, I think that we're going to start seeing a gut muscle access, more of a skeletal muscle gut access connection. Mm. And then finally, the third thing that I'm personally probably most excited about is there is a a new way of measuring skeletal muscle directly. And it's by a something called a deuterated creatine. And it's simply a pill and it tags creatine in the body, which is in skeletal muscle. And then it can be measured in urine. Mm. When that happens and is available to the public, providers will begin to see different trends and health outcomes for skeletal muscle mass. And I'm really excited about that. Wow. It's compelling. Exciting stuff. Something I didn't hear you mention about directly as a supplement. What are your thoughts on essential amino acid supplementation and branch chain amino acid supplementation? When it comes to muscle health, it's important to recognize that we need all the amino acids. We don't just need the essentials. So for example, if you are taking a 30 gram of just essentials, it would almost be equivocal to 15 grams. 
because you still have to make up for the non-essentials. Where there could be use for essential amino acids is in a meal that is lower protein. Mm -hmm. A lower protein meal, if you are, again, more plant-based, adding in an essential amino acid with the meal, not independent of a meal, but with a meal to reach a leucine threshold, I think is a great idea. Branch chain amino acids alone, I typically don't recommend them. I have some anecdotal experience with decreasing muscle soreness or intra-workout. But, you know, from an evidence standpoint, I would say no. But essential amino acids could be certainly useful. I love it. Last question. What's a book that you've read in the last year? It could be fiction, nonfiction, that is like was a game changer. Indistractable. Nice. Who's it by? I don't know. So I have a book club. You do? I have a book club. It's called Freedom Reads. And my business partner, her name is Emily Fursella. And we have a book club and we have all the authors on. So we had Jocko on. We had Tim Grover on, who wrote Relentless and Winning. Chris Voss, who's an FBI negotiator. But anyway, indistractable. So we read a book a month or so. How can people get, I mean, is this a public book club? or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can go to Freedom Reads and it's on Instagram. We have a website, Freedom Reads, and we open it up every new book. And the last book we read was The Chaos Machine. Talked about the influence of um, social media. And uh, yeah, we read this book. We're reading this one on, you know, what yourself, but yeah, it's, it's really fun. I'll have to join. I'll join the book club. Yeah. All right. So my friend, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to get the book, learn about your work? Where do they go? So depending on when this comes out, the book comes out October 17th. You can go to my website, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I have a ton of free stuff like workout videos, eBooks, newsletter with scientific information. You name it. I have it on the website. I have a podcast called The Dr. Gabrielle Lyons Show. It is very evidence-based. We talk a lot about muscle-centric medicine, et cetera. I am active on Instagram. You could get the book Forever Strong on my website. You could get it on Amazon. And I'm active on Twitter. We also, by the way, there's two things I'm going to mention that I haven't really talked much about at all. We have a physician training course and a health coach training course from the Institute of Muscle-Centric Medicine. So some of these concepts, we are going to be training up other physicians in hallmark studies, ways to think about things, some of the new testing, things that I think are really, really valuable. And part of the book, which we didn't touch on, Will, has a mindset component. Like you, I've been seeing patients for over 15 years and a good provider recognized patterns of disease and an effective physician recognizes patterns of people with that you can use medicine to get the best out of people so there's a mindset component love that thanks for mentioning that this has been great come back on the show anytime my friend it's great to see you good to see you too my friend Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.
please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.